So we are in Daniel, and one of the things that I neglected to mention last time is that the language changes. Daniel is the only book of the Bible where it's written partially in Aramaic and partially in Hebrew. The change occurs here in chapter 2, verse 3. And the standard commentary on that is that all of this from 2, 3 to 7, which is where it changes back to Hebrew, talks about Gentiles. And it's written in Gentile language. You, you can buy that or not as you choose. A good, a good an explanation as any. This is also the only book that I know of where you have the testimony of a Gentile. Because after Nebuchadnezzar gets uh, taken out for a period of time and is out grazing grass and stuff like that, at the end of that time he comes in and he gives testimony. In the Baptist sense, I firmly believe that Nebuchadnezzar got saved because he gives glory to God and, and so forth. So I'm going to pick it up in uh, Daniel 2 and verse 31. So what we've had up until now is that the king has had a dream, and the dream disturbed him so much that he called all of his staff wise men in, and he told them that he had had this dream, and he asked them to interpret it. And of course, they said, sure, boss, tell us what the dream was. We'll give you the interpretation. And he says, no. You got to tell me both the dream and the interpretation. And they said, I uh, can't do that. He said, fine. In that case, as far as I'm concerned, you all are a bunch of charlatans, and I'm going to go ahead and wipe you out and start out with a new bunch of wise men. When the captain of the guard gets to Daniel in his process of wiping out uh, wise men, Daniel says, What's going on? And the guy tells him. And Daniel says, Well, God will interpret the dream. Let me, let's go talk to the king. goes in and talks to the king and says, there's a God in heaven that will interpret your dream. Then he and his three henchmen, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, go off and pray. And in the night, as he is praying, he gets the answer. He gets what the dream is and what the interpretation is. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to go through the dream. And before we do, there are several interpretations to this dream. And I'm going to actually give you yet another interpretation, which isn't standard. You remember, for those of you who have been around a few times, as we went through Genesis, you have a Hebrew captive who is called into the presence of the king because the king has a dream that has disturbed him. And God gives the Hebrew captive the interpretation of the dream. And as a result of that interpretation, the Hebrew captive is elevated to be second in command of the kingdom. So there's very much parallel stories here. And of course, as we said last time, Daniel would certainly have known about the story because Daniel reads the Torah. And this is way past the time the Torah was written, and Daniel is familiar with the Torah, so he would know the story of Joseph. When we went through the story of Joseph, there's actually three different interpretations of Pharaoh's dream depending on what culture you come from. So if you are an Egyptian, the dream is really frightening because Pharaoh's a god, livestock are deities, the Nile River is a deity, and so what you have then is the revelation of a dream to a deity where the the Nile itself, which is a god, coughs up these seven cows 
and the seven stalks of grain, and then the Nile itself coughs up seven lean cows and seven lean ears of grain, and the lean set destroys the fat set and shows no evidence of having consumed them. And, oh, by the way, the dream is to the deity Pharaoh, and so from the Egyptian point of view, this whole thing is really disturbing, even though they don't know necessarily what it means. From a Hebrew perspective, it means something different yet, because what you have is the original set of dreams that Joseph had, where the brother's sheaves of wheat bowed down to his sheaf of wheat, and of course, the problem with that is that the Hebrews are not farmers, they're herdsmen. So you have another set of dreams where you've got sheaves of wheat and a whole bunch of other stuff, and so from, and I'm not going to go through the whole interpretation, but from a Hebrew perspective, the dream means something yet different. The third interpretation is the one that Joseph actually gives, which is just straight economic, which is to say, God has told you, O Pharaoh, there's going to be seven fat years, there's going to be seven lean years, and oh, by the way, you really need to store up grain during the seven fat years because the seven lean years are going to be so lean that the fat years are going to be completely forgotten if you don't do something. So you've got three different interpretations based on three different sets of symbols. Depending on what your symbol set is, you get a different interpretation. I am going to suggest to you the same thing is happening in Daniel. With that in mind, off we go. So I'm in Daniel chapter 2, and I'm picking it up now in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so as not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there's the dream. I'm going to go ahead and read through the interpretation, and then we'll come back and unpack it. Because what I'm suggesting to you is the interpretation that Daniel gives is analogous to the interpretation that Joseph gave to Pharaoh. Culturally neutral. So not under verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So what he's now doing is something very analogous to what Joseph did with Pharaoh. And what he's saying is God has chosen you, O king, because you need to know this information. So he is giving you this information because you're king, and I am simply the vessel by which God is transferring this information from himself to you. And oh, by the way, you are the head of gold. Verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, 
strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, the interpretation sure. What Daniel gives the king is basically just an outline of history up until the great God, his God, decides to set up his own kingdom. And that's sort of a neutral interpretation. You know, everybody, at least intellectual, realizes that he's going to be die and there's going to be successors and so forth. So basically he's telling him what's going to be happening with his kingdom and what's going to be happening for the next three kingdoms. The key to this is his being able to tell the king what the dream was. That's the thing that gets him in. And then once he's in there, the interpretation is unremarkable. So there's some symbols in here that are interesting. First off, 10. How many toes do you have? Usually 10. And later on, there's going to be a vision where we're going to have a beast with 10 horns. You have the beginning of this 10 business, if you will. The next thing is no human hand cutting the stone. What does that remind you of? The temple, it is specifically forbidden to use iron tools or to use dressed stone in putting up an altar. The Torah says if you're going to put up an altar, you will use undressed stone that are not cut. Terminology it uses, you won't use an iron tool on them, but it's also, you will not cut these stones because what you'll use to worship me are the stones that I provide you. You aren't going to make your own, which is to say you're not going to dress it. So the idea then that this stone that falls on the kingdoms is made without human hands to a Hebrew says, ha, this is God's doing, this is worship stuff, this is temple stuff. Notice he doesn't mention any of that to Nebuchadnezzar. The third thing is you've got a marriage in here. If you look at it, it says, I'm down to verse 43. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. That sounds like the Nephilim. In Genesis 6, you have this unnatural marriage that happens that annoys God to the extent that he finally decides to sand everything down and start over because the unnatural union is something that he does not condone. So you have here an unnatural union that does not hold together. And I'm suggesting to you that's reminiscent of 
pre-flood world. The other thing is there's two words used in here for clay. When he first starts, he uses a word, and I don't remember what it is, but down here with the marriage part, it's talking about the same stuff as the dust of the earth from which God makes humanity in Genesis chapter 2. So the idea there is the clay, using that same word, is humanity. So what I'm suggesting to you is we are talking about not a flood because God said he wouldn't do that, but another situation where God is coming down and is taking care of things for much the same reason that he did in pre-flood Genesis. Because all the symbols point to what happened before the flood in Genesis. So what that leads you to is that you are talking about the messianic kingdom, which is a kingdom where God himself and the person of Yeshua is going to reign for a period of time. It's not simply another blessed kingdom, sort of like biblical hyperbole, where they go in and say, oh, king, live forever. You understand what I'm saying? It's not that kind of thing, because the symbols all point to a messianic kingdom. And the last thing is when the stone destroys the feet of clay, it not only destroys the feet of clay, but it destroys all the other metals at the same time, which is to say there is not going to be a subsequent human-dominated kingdom. Everybody see what the symbols are now? Because one of the major symbols in Hebrew literature is a threshing floor. And what happens on a threshing floor? It's a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of God coming down and threshing. And so the idea here is God himself is going to come down because he is unhappy with what's going on with an unnatural mixture. He is going to judge the place just exactly the same way he did in the pre-flood world, except this time he's not going to do it with water. He himself is going to destroy the adverse mixtures, and he himself is then going to take up rulership. None of this does Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, this is just what the sequence of the world is going to be up until we get this massive kingdom. Within Christianity, there are several interpretations of this in addition to the one that I just gave you. Standard interpretation is Babylon, and Daniel himself says, you, the head of gold, are Babylon. Okay, so that one's pretty crisp. The next one is the Medes and the Persians, who will take over from Babylon, and the Medes will be absorbed by the Persians. And of course, the Persian Empire is where you have the Book of Esther. In fact, Daniel is going to be Nebuchadnezzar's viceroy. He is sort of going to get put out to pasture by Nebuchadnezzar's successor, and then is going to be brought back in at Belshazzar's feast, after the Belshazzar's feast is when the Medes and the Persians are going to conquer Babylon. And then he is going to, in fact, hang around until the time of Cyrus in the Persian Empire. The next empire that follows that is going to be the Greek Empire under Alexander. Pretty much everybody sort of agrees up until that point. That last empire is where people go all over the map. If you're a Mormon, what they will say is, that last empire happened in 1830, 
when we got the Book of Mormon and the new empire started off, and we now have this last empire that is made when the Messiah came down, gave us the Book of Mormon, and we now have our empire and we're off, and we're just continuing on. In the Reformation, that last empire was thought of as Rome. That gave those who were in the Reformation courage, if you will, to overthrow the Roman church because they thought that they were doing what was prophesied. In other words, if that last empire, that the iron legs is Rome, then overthrowing the Church of Rome becomes a prophetic event, and that was the impetus for the Reformation. So you've got all sorts of interpretations of mostly that last empire with the legs of iron and the feet with iron and clay and all that kind of stuff. So it's great indoor sport, trying to figure out what that last kingdom is. You've got 10 there, and you've got a mixture within that 10. You've got toes and iron and so forth that don't mix. We will see when we get to the beasts that you'll have the beast with 10 horns. So this is clearly talking about the same stuff. I don't spend a lot of bandwidth worrying about it. I'm not really a prophecy buff. I am more a Torah teacher. But there are lots of people who just spend a lot of time on this, and I figure that when God takes us out in the next Exodus, he'll let me know what I need to know, and I'll just go ahead and do what he tells me to do. When the Roman Empire broke up, Europe has been trying to reestablish the Roman Empire ever since. So, for example, the Russian Tsar is the Russian pronunciation of Caesar. The Kaiser in Germany is the German pronunciation of Caesar. There have been a number of attempts to reestablish the Roman Empire. All sorts of theories as to who the ten kings are. One theory that I have heard is it's a succession. In other words, we are about at the tenth one whenever he gets crowned. I have heard the ten original signatories. I don't know that there were ten. But everybody that studies this and cares about it, and quite frankly, I don't study it, is trying to fit the European Union into the tenth beast and trying to figure out who the little horn is, who is the king that rises up over it all. Prince Charles is a candidate. And as I say, it's great indoor sport, no heavy lifting, and it's endlessly entertaining. If you want to spend time on that, God bless you. And I'm not saying that in a dismissive way. It's important. And studying it is important. But that's just not the thing that interests me. I am more interested in teaching Torah. And I can explain the symbols to you. I can explain what's going on. But I do not pretend to be able to explain to you who the little horn is, who the Antichrist is, or anything like that. It's just not something I study. It's sort of like Christians trying to figure out when the rapture is. I'm not a rapture guy either. I don't believe what most of American Christianity believes is going to happen is what's going to happen. I just don't find any pattern for it in Scripture. And trying to figure out who the little horn in Daniel is is very much like trying to figure out when the rapture is. And you've got books that have been written. You know, the classic one is 88 Reasons Why It's Going to Be in 1988. And Things that interest me more than that, which adequately take up my time, so I don't spend a lot of time on it.
But if there's something that interests you, God bless you and go study it and enjoy it. Having said that, though, with a caveat, nobody has succeeded in figuring it out yet, and it's unlikely that you will be the one. Notice how I said that. I said unlikely, not impossible. And so I take all of this with a grain of salt. It's really interesting. I enjoy listening to it when somebody knows what he's talking about, talks about it, but it's not what I study. Let's crank through the fiery furnace. We'll call that a day. Well, I'm now down to 246. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered him and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. The thing to notice here is Daniel has been made chief of staff of all these guys that couldn't interpret the dream. There are those, and I think it's a credible belief, that believe that the wise men that came from the east at the birth of the Messiah were in fact descendants of these people that Daniel was in charge of and that Daniel himself gave them the signs that they were to look for and that the Magi were these guys that Daniel's now in charge of and part of what he did is he gave them the prophecies in Scripture so that when it was time for the Messiah to be born they were able to come and anoint him king. However, at this point in the day they show absolutely no gratitude. So verse 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet, and its breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Plain of Dura is the area between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. If you have an image of gold that is 90 feet high, he has gone to considerable effort and expense to make this thing. And so what he's doing now is very much the same thing that Ahasuerus does in the book of Esther. Remember when Ahasuerus took over as king, he brought in the leadership of the entire empire and they had a major party for six months. And that was the beginning of the book of Esther. So you have a new king. He's bringing in all the governors and so forth in to get together. And what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do is say, I'm the guy, and you're going to fall down and worship my image. This is also consistent with what happened throughout that region at this time. So Pharaoh was a god, at least according to the Egyptians. Nebuchadnezzar is a god, at least according to the Babylonians. Caesar is a god, at least according to the Romans. All of this is very consistent with an establishment of power in that region. Verse 4, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the idea here is if you don't worship at my altar, too bad for you. By the way, we are seeing that happen again. And the altar that we're worshiping at now is Gaia, the earth. And this business of global warming and all that kind of stuff, you now have the Attorney General of the United States floating the idea of prosecuting anybody who speaks against the idea of global warming. It was announced today that the Attorneys General of 17 states banding together to prosecute anybody who speaks or publishes against the idea of man-made global warming. This stuff that is going on here is not just biblical stuff. This is the way pagans behave. And most of the liberals in the United States are neo-pagans. I mean, they don't call themselves that, but they essentially are. They have earth worship, and some of them are actually spiritual and worship elemental spirits. Others of them are simply scientific, if you will, and are out to save the world. And that's worshiping Gaia. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Notice, these are the guys that just got saved. These are the guys that were on their way to being destroyed. And instead of showing some gratitude, what they have done is they're going after the guys that saved them. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Two things. Thing one was Daniel. Daniel is not in this list. Now, there is speculation among Bible commentators that perhaps Daniel was off on state business somewhere and these guys used the occasion of his absence to try and take out his comrades. In other words, if Daniel had been there, Daniel is close enough to the king, and Daniel has just interpreted the king's dream, and Daniel's got too much horsepower to take out. But his comrades don't have that same kind of horsepower. So what they're trying to do is take them out with the idea of eventually going after Daniel because they're going to use the same mode of attack against Daniel later on, and that's when we do the lion's den. So this is clearly... A bunch of people who don't like the fact that Donald Trump has come in and been made president and brought his own cabinet in, and they're going to try and take him out. That's exactly what's going on here. Um, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. 
But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, he has just had a demonstration of the power of God. Quite frankly, the fact that he has offered these guys a second chance indicates that he really doesn't want to do this. And it will become more apparent when he's dealing with Daniel. He really doesn't want to do this. And when he realizes that his staff magicians have set Daniel up, and Daniel then survives, he turns around and takes all those staff magicians and throws them in the lion pit with their families because he is so ticked. So he really doesn't want to do this. And so he's offering these guys a chance to, hey guys, just cool it. My reputation's on the line here. So just cool it and bow down and we'll just forget this whole thing happened. That's what he's trying to have happen. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Which is to say, up yours, O king. I mean, that's, that's basically what they're saying. King, we don't answer to you here. And that, you know, that's just like pouring gasoline on him. I mean, he's, he's already backed into a corner. He's already got his pride on the line. And they just walked in and poured gas on him. I mean, he is, at this point, furious. Verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's not even any attempt to be diplomatic here. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, I guess so, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. When these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, they were thrown into the burning fire furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. In other words, he's got the thing so hot that when they open the door, the backdraft comes out and kills the guys that are chucking these three Jews in. 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. We pitched three of men there. There's four of men there now, and they don't look they don't look like they're unhappy about it. At this point, I would gently suggest the king probably has his chamberlain show up with a change of underwear. Just guessing. Verse 26. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Notice he's changed the title here. Come out and come here. Now, i got to tell you, if I had been one of those three guys, I would have said, I'll talk to you later. I'm working on my tan right now. You come in and talk to us. Or, you know, I mean, but they don't. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. 
and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. At this point, they sort of begin to believe that they are dealing with the real God. Actually, back up, that's not true. These are polytheists, so they are perfectly comfortable with the fact that the Hebrews have a God, and they are perfectly comfortable with the fact that that God is very powerful. That doesn't mean that they cease to believe in their own gods. This is just simply their God talked to our God, and among the gods they decided that we're going to give a little demonstration here. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our gods are null and void. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. What he's saying is, my reputation is no longer on the line. When these guys told me to stuff it in front of everybody, I had to do something. Now that a God has intervened, my reputation is okay. In other words, I can now bring these men back into my employ because their God has negated my command and a God is authorized to do that, but no man is. 29. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So when God intervenes, the king's reputation is no longer damaged because clearly we've taken this up to a higher court and it's been decided there. Now this whole business is going to be repeated except instead of fiery furnace, we're going to do lion's den, but it's going to be the same kind of thing. And the same bunch of people are going to try and mousetrap the king to get rid of Daniel next time. One of the things that I will do, I don't have time to do it today, there's also a chiastic structure in Daniel. And there's a couple of them that I'll probably try and show you next time because it lays out how the book is laid out. Please consider becoming a sponsor please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.